Hey, welcome to the One to One podcast powered by Stablo. I'm your host, Scott MacArthur. We sit down with leaders and customer experience to get a unique take on how to best engage customers, drive sales, reduce churn, and ultimately increase loyalty. My guest today is Bryce Seshuk. He's the co-founder of WinMobile, now Freedom Mobile, the Canadian equivalent of a telco disruptor like T-Mobile or Metro PCS in the US. After a 10-figure exit, he's been investing in the innovation ecosystem as a managing partner at Globalive. He shares his rollercoaster story of starting WinMobile and how wind punched above their weight in a stagnant telco market. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Bryce, thanks for uh, thanks for joining our podcast. Great to be here. Um, bunch of questions focused around customer experience and your views on customer experience. You have a pretty killer background, um, you know, in the telco space and the venture space. Why don't you give me a bit of a background of, of what you're doing at Globalive and sure. and uh, what they're all about? Sure. So, I think the best way to frame Globalive is just to give you a little bit more of a background. And really, we carve it into two categories. So. Myself and my business partners, although not working together all from day one when we all graduated university, but for the bulk of our careers, we have been together. And if you take a approximately 25-year span from graduation from university till now, about 20 of those years have been operating, predominantly telco businesses, which we'll, we'll talk a lot about. And in um, 2016, we had a sequence of exits from all of our operating telecom businesses. So we found ourselves after you know, scaling and going hard for t- literally t- over 20 years uh, to s- downsizing by virtue of just selling things to eight staff and a bunch of liquidity. And so we had to figure out life at the end of 2016. <laughs> and l- figuring out life at the end of 2016 when you have liquidity is kind of two choices. Do you go start something else, invest your capital and kind of do another operating business, or do you do something else? And we decided to build an investment platform. And so Globalive Capital is the result of that that liquidity. And what we did is what I'll call standard family office theory around investment. However, given our backgrounds and our actual rabid belief in the innovation economy, we massively over-index our investing to venture and tech. So that's kind of our backgrounds. That's cool. And so why don't we talk about, you know, one of your earlier success stories, you know, the Canadian marketplace, probably what what your your company and you guys are most well known for is is WinMobile, now known as Freedom Mobile. Um, may not be known to many people outside of Canada. Uh, when you start as a fairly small, scrappy uh, new new entrant in Canada, and I think we were talking about this before. It's it's a really cool success story of of the art of the possible around punching above your weight and really starting to bring a, a unique value proposition into into the Canadian marketplace. Talk to me about what that roller coaster ride was like with, within that wind now freedom brand. Absolutely. So you don't wake up in the morning having graduated from university and start Wind Mobile. You don't start a facilities-based wireless company without a bit of a precursor career, if I can say it that way. So the way it went for us is as follows. I break it into into let's call it two main phases. Phase one was the pre-wireless company build-out phase which gave us a platform and also a skill set of scaling to allow us then to scale something even bigger. So the quick on it is my business partner, Tony, well known in the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Canada, graduated from U of T engineering in 1998. He started a company, saw an opportunity uh, with with deregulation in telco, started a company, brought new tech, kind of a lot of the typical things we hear about now to telecom. And in 1998, literally bootstrapped $4,000 in revenue and started to build. 
He had every problem that you have when building a business. He, all his customers almost went bankrupt on him once. He had to pivot, all those, these kinds of terms. And over the first five-year period, he went from, from 4,000 in revenue to 33 million. He was the fastest growing company in wow. Canada, and he'd really started to scale. That's amazing. In 03, he realized that he'd probably gotten over his skis a little bit, and it was, he had to retool his management team and kind of take the company up a level to, to continue to build. He's a builder, so he wanted to grow. So three of us joined him, a COO, myself as a CFO, and another guy who's legal and regulatory, which is super important for telco, as you know. We, the four of us came together, and from 03 to 07, through M&A and Organic, we built that company in its next phase to 120 million in revenue, very profitable. Very small amount of equity raised, a lot of debt capital, uh, kind of the whole game. And we had bought a company in 06 that many Canadians will know called Yak Communications. And that was our largest acquisition. It kind of took us up a level, took us into the consumer realm and so on. And then in late 07, the government of Canada came along and they said, we have a whole bunch of issues in wireless in Canada. Okay. And just to take people back to that time period for those who are either too young to remember or not in Canada. In 07, we all know the iPhone came out, so it was becoming more and more clear, the smartphone revolution and the need for wireless as a core tool for countries' innovation, mobility strategy, and so on. So, and we were behind as a country. And why were we behind? We were behind because we had this actually almost perfectly operating oligopoly of three main companies, Bell, Rogers, and Telus, we all know them, and they, they priced to perfection for lack of a better way to say it, we had the lowest penetration of wireless subscribers in the developed world in 07. We had, they had the highest profit margins of any sizable developed market in the world. Um, the customer bills per, per month were the highest in the developed world. And I could go on and on and on. So that frame prompted the government to do what we call a regulatory dislocation. They came in and they said, we are going to auction Spectrum off, put some other conditions around it, and we are not going to allow those three to participate in that part of the auction. That was kind of the moment of our lives. So we had to, to come into Canada and participate in that market. You, as foreign capital, you needed a Canadian partner because of foreign investment restrictions. We had an alternative telecom platform that was one level below the big guys, but interesting enough to, to attract foreign capital. Sure. And so... What we did is we scoured the world looking for capital. 10 days before the auction, we met an Egyptian billionaire. We put a deposit with the government of, this is all public, of $215 million 10 days after meeting him. So that deposit goes down and then we enter an auction, we buy the spectrum, and then the story really starts. Yeah, I remember that time. It was, you know, the, the big three were, were in a really good position. As you say, great ARPU. I worked at Telus the time, so our stock price kept on going up quite oh, a bit. Yeah. So I love that from uh, from being an employee and being, <laughs> being a shareholder. Sure. Um, but I heard it day in day out from family members <laughs> saying I'm paying too much money. Yeah. Um, so from a CX perspective, what you touch on a bit around cost, but from pure CX standpoint, what did you see was the real opportunity within the Canadian telco so market? So I hit a few points, but let's get a little more granular on that and. It's, it was actually quite a long list. And candidly, when the Egyptian partners looked at this, they actually couldn't believe this market existed. So here's a quick hit list for you. 
massively obfuscated bills. So you never knew as a customer in Canada whether what your bill was going to be month to month. It always changed by overage, by other uh, uh, hidden fees, whatever the case may be. Very confused pricing. Um, we call it continuous bill shock. Literally, you go to the United States, if you recall, you come back and suddenly you got a $1,000 bill. People, there, were, there were so many horror stories about that. If you got a handset subsidy, which locked you in for three years, very long contracts, and you left the carrier, as you'll recall, after a year or two, the penalties that you would pay to break those subsidy contracts massive, were out of this world and disproportionate massive. on all levels yep. to the cost of the equipment. Um, negative net promoter scores, like negative to levels that I don't think the rest of the world has seen negative. Complete distrust of your provider. Prepaid as a category focused on, well, prepaid on a per minute or per megabyte basis was always higher priced than postpaid to push people to postpaid because of where the EVs were for these carriers. And look, oligopoly rents that were disproportionate from an ROI perspective, the list never ends. So we're looking at this and we're like, there is so much white space in this market. And that is kind of what created the meeting of the minds. For sure. That's, it's such an incredible story. And I, I remember back to, again, what does that tell us? You guys launched, I think it was around 2009. 2000, was late 2009. December 09. And living in Toronto, there was these statues. I think there were statues all they around were. the city. And I was trying to find a picture to show Alex the other day. Just You guys took over the city with billboards. It was all about the 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 everyday person, the everyday heroes, um, using some of Arcade Fire's songs to, yep. to back that up. One of the coolest marketing strategies I've ever seen from branding exercise. What, what, what were your differentiators when you launched? So the first thing that I'll say, and this was really quite neat, and I don't know if you remember this, but prior to launch, when we first did the deal with Naguib and got our Spectrum licenses, it, it, from, from license acquisition, let's call it uh, fall of 08, to launch, that was a year, over yep, a year. Yeah, point. Yeah. So Tony actually, to his credit, had a great idea alongside our PR agency to set up a website called wirelesssoapbox.com. Does that ring a bell? I remember that. Okay. So, we were going there all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're learning about your own, uh, your own company. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that, that site, so the Canadian market was about a decade into this oligopolistic craziness. You'll recall the earlier wave of consolidation of FIDO, which, uh, was Rod, which became part of Rogers, and then ClearNet, which became TELUS's wireless division where you were working. So Canadians had been oligopolized now for almost a decade. You put this forum, which is a basically a posting website where they can go vent and talk about what they want in a provider, and it went, it went viral. We had tens of thousands of people come and talk about their wireless experience. So that was really interesting because it started to put a brand ethos out there of communicating with the customer, um, allowing them to give feedback and trying to be an honest player with the customer. What did we think our brand proposition would be before we even launched? You know, you sit around in a room, you whiteboard it, you talk to some focus groups and customers, and here was our play. We wanted to be the honest broker. We wanted no hidden fees. We were simplicity, so there was no, you want an unlimited, voice text data package. That's an unlimited voice text data package. It's 50 bucks a month. It says $50 and you pay a bit of tax on that because it's Canada yeah, and sure. you're done. So no game playing there. Um, unlimited as a concept which hadn't existed. The closest Canada got to unlimited was you may remember in the mid 90s, 
Fido, towards the end, before it sold to Rogers, launched something called City Fido. And the popularity of that was un was unbelievable. A lot of people don't know much about it. It caused lineups around blocks and stores because of the quality of the, the plans. Rogers quickly bought it, shut that down, and that was over. So we had a bit of a, a map. And if for those from the US, Metro PCS and Cricket would be our, would have been our analogs sure. up here. So unlimited, uh, we actually launched with no handset subsidy. So our theory when we launched, wow. bring your handset or we'll sell you one and we will give you a super fair plan. Now that had to change and we'll talk about that as we go. Um, our prepaid and postpaid plans were priced the same. So they were not differentiated. We weren't trying to drive one to the other. And um, I'd say though that was the ethos. If you Google or if you YouTube win mobile hot dog, you'll, you'll see the ad, okay? And what, what we did is we took a hot dog vendor in Toronto, yep. okay? Oh, do you remember yes, this? Remember yeah. Yeah, yeah, we took a hot dog vendor in Toronto and he's, you know, he's standing there as his vendor cooking, cooking his dogs and he's like, hot dogs, $1, hot dogs, $1, hot dogs, $1. And a customer comes and he takes the hot, the we, the hot dog, yep. puts it in a bun, <laughs> adds the condiments, gives a napkin, that'll be 550 please. And what you said it was a dollar. Oh no, no. Naked wiener only. <laughs> you had bun cut. And so the point was as to how they play with That's pricing. Awesome. And all. That is my favorite ad to this day that we ever did at wind. And it was the starting point, just poking at the bear. We were doing something epic and epic in terms of a commercial change to the Canadian marketplace, bringing something to a population that was st had been starved for a decade of that kind of customer uh, ethos and, and experience. So our advertising took on an epic style, and that included statues as a novelty yeah, around. Sure. Uh, there was a commercial shot with those statues, you'll recall. The music scores that you refer to, which again, wanted to play on the theme of, well, you know, as you said, I think, or as you might have asked or had on a note, Rage Against the Machine, that arcade fire style. And so the, the thing about challenging, the thing about epic and the epic change, that was our, that alongside the other attributes I just articulated was how we wanted to go to market. You know, fast forward 10 years, 11 years, I guess, almost now, do you think a lot of the things you guys, you as, as wind back then stood for, do you think that's as relevant today? And, and do you think it's being practiced by the, the other big three? Very good question. So here's what I would say. I do think that that initial ethos of being you know, honest broker, uh, price transparent, unlimited. And then we added to the unlimited over time, as you know, in particular, the big breakout was the international roaming, which really changed the game. Absolutely. You take all of those things, and I would suggest that we did, we, first of all, freedom would still be associated to that ethos. They haven't, uh, they've come up market a little, but they haven't lost that, that association. And I would say that when you look at Rogers, Tellus and Bell, look at what we've seen. They have roam like homes now, right? You can actually do unlimited roaming yeah. day by day, and then there's a cumulative amount. They have moved to equipment installment plans. They have moved off the subsidy quite a bit. There's now a, a clear line, partly driven by regulatory change, around how the subsidy relates to termination. Um, they've been far more large data bucket focused, not quite unlimited, but getting closer. So absolutely pressure from below over a protracted period of time that chips away at market share of an oligopoly 
does have impact. And from a pure, you being a CFO, from yeah. a pure financial standpoint, do you think that's helped the Canadian telco market of really focus on customer experience and giving them what they need? I think so. I do. As you know, there were some big moves made in the last 12 months around big bucket data plans that look a lot like unlimited. What does that do to a telco? It starts to cut into overage fees. Okay, so you're now cutting into overage. Analysts get up in arms. What's this going to do? Well, the response, for example, from Rogers was very clear. By being price transparent, we're going to charge more for that unlimited. So the, the headline will be a little higher, obviously, uh, uh, from a bill perspective, but it'll be lower than the overage plus. Yep. So uh, the net customer experience being more transparent translates to a better customer experience translates to lower customer service. Let's get to the, the point. For sure. Lower customer service costs. So EBITDA margins are not impacted. Customers are happier. And we have a, we have a, you know, we're all singing Kumbaya together. So the one thing that is important to note, you'll recall that I talked about, we launched with no subsidy. Okay. I want to come back to that point because it's very important to the life, the life of wind and also to the market. So the Canadian marketplace in that era was addicted to equipment subsidies, okay? The reality was, even back then when iPhones were not $1,500 each, but you had Blackberries and you had early iPhones and you had other t uh, Huawei, uh, various types of smartphones, it was still noticeable from a ticket perspective and the incumbents had done a very good job at acclimatizing people to not having to pay for their phone. That trade that people would do of, I'll take a subsidy, but I'll pay a very high bill price, we thought we could compete against that without a subsidy. We were, we were completely and utterly wrong in our business plan. Because everybody at that time thought phones were free. 100 bucks, free, yeah. $150, you know, you know the story there. So after seven or eight months in 2010, we launched in late 2009, seven months in, two things happened. Number one is other new entrants launched and they had the same model as ours. Prepaid, no subsidy, and what happens in that scenario? when you're not getting the uptake because you're all competing with each other, you start using price as your weapon. Sure. Started to drive the market price down. The second thing is that we realized that the addressable market for non-subsidized was 15% of the total market. We were missing 85% of the market. So I remember this very well. Mid-2010, we start realizing that we are missing, we are radically missing addressable market. We re-business plan the entire forecast of wind. We look at the impact of adding a subsidy. We go to our shareholders and we say, guys, we made a mistake in our business planning and our commercial proposition by not having a subsidy. We need to introduce it. The peak funding change to the business plan was multi-hundred million dollars negative. Yeah. Wow. Now, the long-term lifetime value and enterprise value was very positive but the early stuff, cash flow up front. Yeah. And so we had some very hard conversations with shareholders, we got past it, and that was, so you don't see the behind the scenes look, but that's what resulted in the wind tab, which everyone knows that name Absolutely. now. Absolutely. So that was a huge, that actually changed the company. The day after we launched the subsidy, sales doubled. The, about a two, month or two after, the subsidy was 80%, 70 to 80% of activations, and we never ever looked back. And it worked literally almost like October of 14, the business really started to show the operating leverage. And, you know, I'll give you a number. We did 800,000 in revenue in 2009. In 2015, 
we did 487 million in revenue. Like this thing That's was fantastic. The, the operating leverage from wireless infrastructure when you get your flywheel going is crazy. I'll let you talk about the roller coaster of of the the sell, the investment, the purchase, the sell, all that stuff. But I think it's it's really cool. You know, Global Life started started wind. You got investment through Oruscom. I had Vimplecom, but yep. somewhere Vimplecom came in yep. there somehow, some way. You guys bought it back from Vimplecom and made a killer amount of money on reselling it to Shaw within a very short time frame. So in 2015, latter part of the year, Shaw looks at this whole situation and they're like, okay, these guys were able to put together a proper national wireless company. They've got the right amount of spectrum. They've got the package. And they said, we need to be in wireless. They're a cable co, triple play, no wireless. And they're like, we, we, we need to be ready for the future. And we announced a transaction in December of 2015, and we sold to them on March 1 of 2016. And that's how it went. Do you think the, the Freedom and Shaw marriage is creating even a stronger customer experience uh, focus within the Canadian marketplace? For sure. Whether in Western Canada or in, or in Eastern Canada? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's unequivocal. So if you think about a bunch of different things that relate to this. So number one is Shaw has financial capacity to properly get a spectrum portfolio. Back to the network being the, wire, the lifeblood of wireless. Low band, mid band, high band, LTE rollout. Uh, they'll, they'll be at 5G. They're, they're, they're following the playbook, okay? That's one. They also have the regulatory infrastructure to deal with Ottawa and all the complexity of that better than we did. Let's just be, let's just be honest. They have a very significant physical presence and network presence fixed line in the West. All those households, they're selling a Shaw-branded set of triple play products to. They've got stores that they can bring freedom to. They've got triple play, they've got bundling opportunities and so on. I think on every dimension, there's a massive opportunity and reality of them improving the customer experience. CFO at Wind, but you're also in charge of HR. I find that kind of humorous. Like it's a weird dynamic yeah. of you're driving that that people culture, but you're also looking at the check at the banking statements saying, okay, what's this costing me? Um, how did you evangelize customer centricity throughout the org and, and what kind of programs did you have in place? Call it 08 to 11 for, you know, rounding a bit. We made some changes. One of those changes was in HR and I was asked to take over the portfolio. I seemed to be the guy that would get the portfolios as either people left and weren't replaced or if there was a fire. So I took I eventually got procurement, I got logistics, and I got a few other things. All as, the fun stuff. All the fun stuff. So I, I had, yeah, it was an interesting set of departments. But look, here's what I would say. So I, 2011, I take over HR. We're kind of three years in the life of the company. And we, it, it had been a hard onslaught fight. So the, the company was pretty busted up mentally and uh, kind, of, kind of tired. And we also had a lot of incumbent mindset in the company by nature of who we were hiring. So take that, and I'm going to say we had a bit of a broken company. Okay, so I walk into that and I'm a framework, process, and people-oriented guy. And what I did was as follows. First of all, I did have to clean up HR a bit and change, change up the team and you know, put a certain person in charge, blah, blah, blah. So we do the people moves of HR. And then what I did, and this is actually the thing that, and, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to refer to a book that has come out more recently that I'm going to encourage people to read. It's an HR-style people and culture book written by a guy named Ben Horowitz. Ben Horowitz is a co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most prominent VC firms in the Valley. He just wrote a book called 
what you do is who you are, how to create your business culture. Okay. And the great re- job to, or great, great title. title. Hey, yeah, it's amazing. Great title. So his point, you know, people and culture is a funny thing. Yeah. It's not as, t- it's not tangible. So what is it actually? And it is, I think it is the examples that you set. And so what, and I wasn't thinking about it having read this book. It didn't exist back then. I was just thinking about what, what do I want to do here? What I realized is if you think about a wireless company, the two groups that interact with the customer are retail and call center. The two worst paid groups within the company are retail and call center. The two groups that get abused by corporate because of the ivory tower mindset and so on, retail and corporate. So what I, and three years in, so I did what I, what I call a listening tour. And I put my consulting hat on from one of my past lives and took a laptop. And we had six main cities at that time, Windsor, Toronto, Ottawa, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. And I went to the six cities and I literally would walk into a store, a kiosk or whatever, talk to the regional managers, talk to whatever field department made sense, go to the call center. And I ended up compiling a 75 page document of issues, literally issue after issue after issue. And some of them were as small as, well, my computer, one of my computers that I use in the store doesn't work, to the washrooms aren't cleaned properly every week, to um, much more complicated stuff around how uh, the store interacts with the call center, interacts with dealers and things like that. Take all of that, 75 pages of this, categorized it through socials for them all when I traveled to start an employee engagement program and a communication program, told them where we were and how we were thinking about the future. So take that baseline, bring that back into corporate. You must have been well-liked at corporate with 75 pages of issues. So it was really interesting. We had lost touch with the field. And by losing touch with the field, you lose touch with the customer. Absolutely. So I went back, categorized them by function, and I set up a committee of the field and a committee of corporate. And I set a tone early about who's going to, who defers to who, going issue by issue and addressing the field's needs, making them feel a few things. One, they were appreciated. Two, we communicated with them. And three, we were meeting their needs. And that got us a far better uh, knock-on customer experience. So we sent every corporate employee to do a shift in a store. Okay. So that is, and I did the, the, I think I did the second shift. So my shift was at a mall in Toronto at Danforth and Vic Park called Shoppers World. Some of you guys will know that. And there was, so I went in there and I did an eight hour I remember it was a really nice warm summer day and I could walk from my house because I'm relatively close to there. Lovely team, great young people. It was a a ethnic community, a Bangladeshi community, so that customer base. And I watched for eight hours and I took notes and I think I had another 10 pages of notes. I go back to the office and I said, guys, here's another 10. We're going to work through this and each of you get out and do your shifts. Every person who went out, particularly at the executive level who came back, it was a totally changed perspective, and they would fix new problems that I, could, that I didn't find. And the machine started to go. And I feel like over multiple years, we moved that thing in a very, very positive way. So that's how I would have approached that world. Oh, that's cool. And it's something we've been talking about internally of just having you know, our product or tech folks sitting in listening to customers and, and having kind of that cross-collaboration. Totally. You really start to understand totally. what the pain points are of the customers and what, you know, our help desk person might deal with, or our customer success or sales folks deal with on a regular basis. It's really cool. I guarantee you, if you put a corporate person on a call center call, 
it is the craziest, scariest thing of all time. I would hate talking to Oh, yeah, no, it's nuts, (laughs) but important. Um, So how did that impact? Again, everything usually ends up big companies, all ties back to the financials. By focusing on kind of that people-first mentality and and customer experience, how did that impact your financials as, as you built out that? So I think I would go in a few different directions with that. One is on the HR side, you know, pretty classic. We did have turnover reduction in retail and call center. We did have a bunch of programs where, again, done right, the financial trade of, of comp for retention is one of the best trades ever. You don't have to train, your coaching goes down, it's just perfect. So we had that whole world start to work better. And then the other thing that I would say is that we, there was better sales activity. We were focused more on closing. We had a whole program around closing and all this kind of stuff. And I think churn was lower. They were better at retaining. When customers came in, they were more jazzed. And we, the incentive structures were built for that. So I think that all translates happy staff, happy customers. That's cool. Yeah, bottom line. Not on this. I'm going to ask you just as yeah. we're talking about telco, customer interactions. Good question. Is it bricks and mortar? Is it all online? Is it a mix of both? How do, how do the telcos or operators yeah. interact with their customers? Look, it's hard to uh, crystal ball this industry because the regulatory is so critical and how it evolves. Here's what I'll say. When we started, it was an assisted sale for in all cases. 99% of cases were assisted, no online. Okay, now you can order an iPhone online or walk into an Apple store, buy that thing, take a SIM card from your existing phone, move it over, and you're done. So the act of needing all of the infrastructure that they have for wireless sales, to me, is going to change. Okay, now, look, they sell all quads. They're all quad sell- sellers, so I'm not saying they all go away. And of course, you need some assisted stuff and so on. But if you think about the reasons someone goes into a store, the assisted sale, still bill payments, which is unbelievable to me, and you know a few other activities, they shouldn't really need to happen as prevalently in a store. They can be done in other ways. So I think there is a massive move to figure out alternative ways, partly for under cost pressure Got it. and so on. And I think the next five years, that's going to play further out. The other things, you know, that are kind of, kind of, you know, pie in the sky interesting is there's new tech coming out that's going to be really interesting. 5G. 5G starts to cannibalize fixed line broadband. What does that look like? Uh, Low Earth orbit satellites. If Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are successful, the Earth will be blanketed by low Earth orbit satellites that will provide as good a data connection to a a mobile device as you need. What does a regulator do there? Like, we have some really interesting things on the horizon. Investors are putting a lot of importance around, uh, you know, not just our, our startups or tech companies going to be high, high revenue. They're also looking at profitability. Absolutely. Um, and there's been a big focus on customer experience within that portfolio. Again, as you kind of highlighted, that's really what differentiates companies. That's, that really helps drive the bottom line. Um, you know, as an investor within Globalive, what's driving that strategic focus for you guys at Globalive and just in the, in the general investor community? So here's what I would say as we relate it to customer experience. And I've got a couple of, of anecdotes that I want to give. So the first thing I'll say is that in our mentoring and coaching that we do, um, we do a lot of stuff where we, it doesn't even result in an investment and labs, accelerators, those types of things. And here's something that I find fascinating. And it, I, I see it a lot in Canada. Canada is a country with good engineering, good product, and so on. We are horrifyingly bad at thinking about the customer and about developing for the customer and about selling to the customer. So before you start building anything, define what you think the problem is. Go figure out what you think the customers want, and they will tell you 
180 degree differently Absolutely. than what you think. So I'll, I'll, framing the customer at the center of the startup, which is weird that you even have to say it, is actually still necessary to say. Okay, so I'll use that point first. If you are building something now, what are you trying to do? You're trying to build something that makes some kind of customer's life better than it currently is. That to me is customer experience. That's awesome. Where can our listeners find you if they want to connect? Yeah, so uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'll spell my name because it's an impossible <laughs> one, but last name is S-C-H-E-S-C-H-U-K. First name is Bryce, B-R-I-C-E. Just hunt me down and mention that you heard it on the podcast. Thanks very much. Awesome. Thanks, Bryce. Thank you.